question to start things off uh, on this uh, beautiful September morning. Uh, this question, okay. How would you describe yourself? Would you describe yourself as a cynic or someone who celebrates life? How would you describe yourself? You don't need to discuss it amongst yourselves. Um, but you can think about it, okay, that question. Would you describe yourself as a cynic or someone who celebrates life? Recently, the BBC described cynicism as the defining attitude of our generation. I don't think we would disagree with that, would we, in many ways. We look around and we see the stuff that's going on, we read it. We are deeply, deeply cynical. As Brits, quite often we have a cynical edge to ourselves anyway, but there is an extra layer that there is around us in many ways. And allegedly, it gets worse as you get older. Now, as you know, this summer I have uh, turned a significant age. I'm 50 and... um, no, 60. I just turned 60 this summer. And um, so in, with this in mind, I thought, right, I've got to find out, am I getting more cynical? And so I lay before you five reasons about why you might be getting more cynical. Do you find these five ways that you know you're becoming more cynical? See how you react to these five things. These are, these are, are studied. These are put out there by the experts. These are five things that you find yourself reacting to. It brings out whether you're a cynic or not. Firstly, Celebrity interviews. All right, okay, I can see it written on your faces. Graham Norton, Jonathan Ross, all that lot, whatever. You get cynical. It's not really true, is it, what they're saying? It's just scripted. You're getting cynical, okay? Even in your young age, all right? Secondly, kittens, babies, return for military service. If any of you are on social media anyway, shape or form, Instagrams, whatever, kitten, you know kitten videos are the biggest thing in social media. Do you know that? Cat videos, all that stuff. Are you cynical about that? Are you celebrating that? I don't know. I put that out there. Okay, yeah, there's lots of cynics out there. There's never anything free. Someone's always got it, something in, you know, there's always something behind when they ask us. Even when I was walking down the high street, and there was another bakery opening there. And I walked out and they had, a, they had a, like a, 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 a free cake. And even then I said to them, so what do you want? I mean, I couldn't even stop myself saying it. You know, I mean, we're cynical before we've even started. Even when they just said, no, no, it's a free cake for you. So easily we become cynical, don't we? Fourthly, prepare for the worst. How many of you prepare for the best? Or for the worst. That's a mark of whether you're a cynic or someone who celebrates life. And fourthly, you question everything on the news. Is it really true or is it not? Increasingly, people are unsure about what is true and what is not. Before we know it, we all become Victor Meldrews. I just don't believe it. We can't believe what is happening and what is occurring, and we become cynical. Life is cynical. But the dangerous thing is we know that deeper underneath cynicism, in culture, it can be like a cancer. Because fundamentally, with cynicism, it brings hopelessness. It brings a sense of, what's the point? And even regardless, isn't it fascinating, all the technological advances, all the amazing stuff that science has brought in different ways, shape or form, we are characterized, even, by, even with all the, the, the huge numbers of self-help experts there are on a variety of different channels and books and YouTube channels and whatever, we still seem to be as a society crippled by divorce, by depression, by addictive behavior, by emptiness, by brokenness, by loneliness, by violence. At the risk of sounding 
going right down even lower. Cynicism, if you like, has not just a concept, but it has real-world effects. And as a result of it, it brings a breakdown in trust, doesn't it? If we're cynical, we're not going to trust anybody. And particularly when it comes to institutions and particular people, things have shifted a lot. Ipsos do a thing every other year called the Veracity Index. You can't read all of those, but they are, if you like, the particularly um, most of the sort of roles that we have in society. I will explain some of them. Don't worry, you don't need to look at them all. Um, and basically, it's the trust levels of people as we know them. So, for example, you won't get any surprises. The most trustworthy people are nurses, 93%, doctors, 91%, engineers, for some reason, 89%, teachers, 85%. So, be encouraged if you fit in any of those blocks. You won't be surprised as well, maybe by the least trustworthy people. Come down the bottom. Advertising executives, 13%. Just above them, politicians, generally, 15%. Government ministers, 16%. Liz, Rishi, how do you feel about that? Trust levels have gone up. So for myself, I thought, well, I'll ask the question, of course, trust me, I'm a vicar. Where do vicars fit on this? All I get these days, I can't even say, trust me, I'm a vicar anymore, because people look at me and go, yeah. Because that, and based on this, it's certainly true. Only 56% of the people in the survey believe that I can be trusted. All right? And the funny thing is, well, that's just below the man on the street, who's 57%. Or a home delivery driver is 75%. Which is above the police at 71%. It's a mad, mad, cynical, untrustworthy world we live in. You see, it's a real challenge, this whole thing of cynicism. And uh, the, in many ways, it, it, you know, things are breaking down. And yet again, as well, if we look at the church and we look at faith, what do we see there? Many people are totally, utterly cynical about that. When we were out in the streets doing some little, the comments when people discovered we were from church, the first comment was like, I'm not religious. It's like the line that everybody uses. And the reason they're saying that is because I don't want to be connected with church. And those Christians, you know, they seem to be fighting among themselves. They seem to be disagreeing about stuff. They seem to be totally talking about their own thing. What goes on in that church down St. Albans Road behind the scenes? I reckon it's boring, it's relevant, it's untrue. That would be the general feel of people. Now, some people might be totally neutral about that. Maybe I'm making a generalization about it, saying, no, not my friends, they're really nice. But the point is, generally, very often people can put ourselves in a box, and that includes God himself. But you see, the interesting thing about today, and what we're doing later, is something that, if you like, is like a countercultural defiance, I believe, against the cynicism of the world. Because what it's saying that in this context of hopelessness, this context of, of darkness seemingly, of what's the point, why are we here, where are we going, and certainly on a sort of attitude towards God, four people are standing up and they're saying, I believe this God is good. You heard those words earlier. They're saying, I believe this is true. That God is alive, that he's relevant, and he is for us now. And you see, the whole Bible fundamentally declares the very countercultural truth of cynicism. It celebrates God. That God is a good God that can be known. And that is what we're celebrating today. And that is what we should be celebrating every day day and every week and this church should be known more and more as ccb but celebrating christ 
Celebrating what was the beef on? Uh, in Barnet. <laughs> you know, I mean, we should be like full of celebration, full of joy because we've got God at work within us. We're not going to come under the cynicism around us. We're going to declare the fact that God is good. You see, the other day someone said to me as well, and it should be, it should be a place of joy. Someone said to me, what church are you at? I said, I'm at Christ Church. He said, is that the happy clappy church in Barnet? Now, part of me reacted, thought, part of me wanted to sort of protect myself. And then I said, yes. Because I thought, if I want to be known as anything, I know within that we're thinking, oh, no, I'm not that happy, clappy time. But you know what? I'd prefer to be in a happy, clappy church than a boring, dull, miserable church, wouldn't you? There's a slight clap and a, a happy, clappy moment happened there. So the point is, happy, clappy, unfortunate in some ways, and it, it does have certain syndromes with it. But you know what? I prefer to be known in that way than the other way around. Because you see, fundamentally as well, the challenge for us is this question. What do you think God is like? What do you think God is like? You see, if your view of God is he's some sort of difficult person that I I just can't know, or somehow that he's a distant person, or somehow he's just angry, and he's like a headmaster who's just trying to catch me out and and find me doing wrong, you become cynical in life. But if God is, as I believe, if God is happy, that God actually is in a good mood, that actually he is filled with joy, then that changes everything. John Ortberg says these things. He says this, We will not understand God until we understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. God also knows sorrow. That's my sorrow, not sorry. Sorrow. Jesus is remembered, among other things, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, is his temporary response to a fallen world. The sorrow will be banished forever from his heart on the day the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is the eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. I let that sink in. God is the happiest being in the universe. He is good and he is for us. And if we know that is true, then that is hope replacing despair. Peace overcoming fear. Life overcoming death. And knowing God should be a place of celebration. Every day. Lord God, I'm so glad I know you. Because you are good and you are for me. And you are with me and you're beside me. And right from the beginning of the Bible, when the world was created, and we don't want to get into discussions necessarily about how that happened. Let's not get into that. But the general tenor is God looks at everything that's going on and all the things created. And what does he say? He says, it's well good. Well, he says it is good. But I think the genuine Hebrew translation in my book, it's well good. I'm going to celebrate this. He celebrates it so much he has a day off to celebrate it's so good. And so right from the beginning, goodness starts. It doesn't take very long to chapter 3 when we decide we could do it better. We could do goodness better. You know, we know we can do it better, so we'll do our own thing. And that's when sin and selfishness and cynicism pours into the world. And then the rest of the Bible is like a love story of God pursuing his people, pursuing people in different ways by using a variety of different characters and prophets and whatever to ultimately reach the point where God sends his own son. This good God sends the one perfect person who can provide a way back to know this good God for themselves. 
And he comes back. And that's what he does. His arrival is framed in celebration, isn't it? You know when the angels um, you know, completely freak out, the shepherds, and they're there. And what do the angels say? Behold, I've come to bring good news of great joy. It's a joyful moment. Celebration is in the house as Jesus comes into the scene. And right in the midst of it, those things occur. The first manifesto, we're thinking about manifestos or whatever's going to happen this week. I don't know who's going to get in, all that stuff. Who's going to be our prime minister? Whatever, all that sort of thing. But this is Jesus' manifesto that he shares right at the beginning of his time. He says these things, incredible things. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee. And not just a one-year jubilee. This is a, a culture of jubilee. You know, we had a jubilee this year, didn't we? That big jubilee for the queen. It was incredible. Well, what Jesus is saying, I'm ushering in a jubilee for every day, a celebration for every day because the goodness of God is here. He has come in the person of Jesus to provide a way back to this good God. And it is something good. It is something for us to celebrate and get excited about. You see, God is good. God is good. And so that leads us to this story we just heard very briefly. Where Jesus is, one of his parables, many of his parables are actually full of celebration. They're amazing little things where they're full of celebration. But this is this story, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning where the religious figures are coming in saying, surely I'm going to be with you at the feast in heaven. Because they even talk about, isn't it great that heaven is going to be a feast? It's going to be a party. It's going to be a celebration. You know, sometimes, we, I don't know you, from time to time, and particularly as I'm getting on a bit, you do worry about what heaven's going to be like, don't you? Or you do think about what heaven's going to be like. Number one, make sure you get to heaven. All right? And we could talk about that in a minute. Make sure you're clear on that. Because that will help in so many ways. It will help you to die well. But beyond that, heaven is going to be a place. Maybe it will have the old golf course. I hope not because I played so badly on Friday. I'm not sure whether golf should be there. But certainly it will be a place of eternal centuries playing cricket and that sort of stuff. I don't know. We have our ideas of what we're like. There will be cats probably there for those that love cats. Dogs and rabbits. You know, we, we always think that. But you know what? It will be the most amazing place of celebration, as it says in Revelation. It will be a place where there's no tears, no sadness, total love, no sin. I mean, it's just stuff which is beyond our imagination of celebration. And that will be a great, great banquet. Jesus says, the banquet one day. This is like a picture. He says, one day a master invited everybody all his friends, all the people he knew that he thought would like to come to his party. And you see, very often, he challenged there the religious types. He said, this is what the party is. And, and it's like, you got first invitation. Because he's talking to the Pharisees at this moment in this particular story. But he says, you got first invitation. And what does he do? Those that, if you like, know a little bit, they come up with some excuses. And we got some fascinating excuses here. Just bought a field. Or... I've got a yoke, a yoke of oxen. I've just got married. Or interestingly enough, we'll make it 21st century. You know, I've just bought a house. We've had a bit of an extension put in. 
we've got a few other things we need to do around the place. You know, thanks for the invitation. It's great, but, you know, I've got that going on. Or, you know, the oxen one. Wow, work. Oh, so busy, you know, these days. So busy. There's just so much going on in my life. You know, thanks for the invitation. That's not for me. Oh, getting married. You know, relationships. Poor oh, dear. I just, they're just so stressy sometimes. There's so many things I have to do with people. However we see it, the invitation goes out fully to all these people and they start to give excuses. First challenge. But interestingly enough, and you know, the ultimate invitation Jesus is picturing here is of God giving the invitation to every single person on this planet and inviting them to come to the party, to spend time with him, ultimately eternity with him. And yet people make excuses. But this God, it says, actually, he gets a tad angry, but straight away, he doesn't just react. He opens it out even more. The invitation goes out even further, out into the highways and byways, into the streets, into the city, and just find people, bring them in. God is relentless in his searching for people. He's relentless. He will find any way to reach people. What I loved about those three stories, three different backgrounds, weren't they? And the fourth one is going to be about Iran. He pursued each one of those people and found them in different places, didn't he? From different backgrounds. And he pursued them. That is why God is so good. He loves people so much that he will go to any extent to do that. And he will pursue people because he wants as many people as possible to come to his party. My son had a massive delayed um, uh, wedding party this year. So two years on from when he got married here, just in there, uh, with 15 of us. And then there was about 120 of us at this massive, oh, it was beautiful. It was like country living on steroids. You know, it was like unbelievable deal. And wasn't it amazing when you're at a party or a celebration when the music's great, the food's great, and you're together. There's something about that. But God invites us to his party to join in this celebration. And we know as it goes on in Luke 15, he actually rejoices in such a way. Uh, 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 he pursues the one of the sheep. He also, um, uh, you know, we've got the story of the, the woman who's lost her phone. Sorry, who's lost her coin. And she searches for it and she finds it. And she celebrates it and they celebrate the truth of those things. You see, the danger is, the invitation is available to every single person. But the danger is we miss it. I read a story a few years ago, which just, as I come into land, reminds me of how we give ourselves to so much in life, but we forget perspective on what our life's all about. It's a story of a, a guy who, when he was young, he was a lad, used to play Monopoly with his, uh, his granny. And he played Monopoly with his granny. And every single time she used to play, as he, as he grew up, she used to beat him all the time. She used to thrash him, absolutely thrash him. And he used to play every summer. Anyhow, one summer he decided, right, I am going to find, work out a way that I can beat her. And so he worked and he got his friends and they planned. And he, he realized, you know, you've got to buy certain houses and this and that, whatever. You know Monopoly? You do know where Monopoly is? Yeah, sorry, you're mesmerized by this. Monopoly, just a game of Monopoly. And he's he playing it and he gets it so good, he gets it really good. Finally, right the last week of the summer, he plays against his grandma. He's built himself up. And gradually, as the game goes on, you know what it's like when you're on top and you've bought the right houses and they start landing on that spot. And they start going down and down and down. It's amazing. 
and he completely and utterly obliterates his grandmother. And in his triumph, he sits back. And his grandmother comes out with this phrase. And she says this, this immortal phrase. She says, well, of course, when all's said and done, it all goes back in the box. <laughs> and see, the reality is, isn't it? We give our lives to those things that are the excuses very often. The bottom line is it all goes back in the box at the end. And the fact is, is that in that challenge, God is saying, come to the place in this life, not just in the next. And you can know life in all its fullness. That I am good, I am for you, I am with you. And what we're going to do later is that these folk who made a statement, they're going to say, I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my days. Secondly, they're going to say, I want to stand. For some of them, it's genuinely dangerous for them and their family to stand in knowing Jesus. And thirdly, they're saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die to the old. I'm going to live to the new. And so I want to leave you with three things. If you've been following Jesus for years and years and years, and some of you have, have you become cynical about God? Have you become distant from God? Have you forgotten who this God is? Because my challenge to you in the next few weeks is, and months, get back to this God who is good. Spend time with this God who is good. Drink of his mercy and his love and his grace. Secondly, for some of you, you're saying, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. I'm not sure whether he is good. Maybe that's a moment for you to grapple with some of the questions again. We've got Alpha. It's a great opportunity to do that. And you might know friends who have got the same feeling about it. Please, consider this term for the first time. Invite them again. Invite them again. All they can do is say no. They're not going to put you in prison. They're not going to embarrass you. They're not going to torture you. They're just going to say no. And thirdly, it might be that you actually don't know him yet and this is an opportunity for you to invite him to come in I'm just going to pray now Lord Jesus firstly we want to thank you that you are good thank you Lord that that is a countercultural statement to our cynical world and it speaks beyond just a statement it speaks into a truth that when we invite you in our lives change but Lord, I pray that as people and as a church, we'd be known as a, a church of celebration, a church of joy, a church where we proclaim that you are good. And even in the tough times, when it's hard to know you're there, we declare you are good and your love endures forever. So I pray, Lord, as we share in communion in a moment, that we'll be reminded of your goodness and your love that's shown in the cross. And that, Lord, you'd encourage us to just step out and invite people to say, come and see this one who I've come to know. For he is good.